Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 103rd show. Today's guest is Dr. Kerry Johnson, author of The New Mindset, New Results, and it's a fabulous book. I really enjoyed uh, this book, and it's, and it's a fun book to read as well. So, Kerry, welcome. Thanks. So, Kerry, let's start off with you telling the audience about your background and how you got to where you are. Well, really interesting. So um, uh, speaking of the book, I just brought a book here also so to get a little visual of it. But I was um, I I got out of UC San Diego with a BA and I decided that I was going to I played on the tennis team there and I said I was going to try my hand on the pro tennis tour. So I immediately went to Europe to uh, play on the satellites for a couple of years, came back uh, once I realized I was not going to be in the top 20 in the world and got my doctorate. And then um, I I did this uh, uh, kind of this. Uh, extension program for undergraduates to, to determine whether they're going to academia, where they're going to clinical psychology. I was a research psychologist, and uh, it kind of hit me when I was organizing this seminar that I didn't want to become an academician. I didn't want to become a cl- clinician, and I decided I wanted to go on my own uh, because you know, the other two stuff was just, you know, they didn't make enough money or, or way too intense. So I uh, became a stockbroker for about, uh, you know, one year. Used to make 150 cold calls a day, got rejected 149 times a day, except I called my mom in the afternoons. And even yeah. then, she, you know, she would say, don't ever call me again after yeah. three months. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I started my consulting psychology practice at uh, 26 years old. And I would go around to you know insurance companies, real estate companies, uh, corporations. And I'm sure they looked at me and thought, you know, this 26-year-old kid is going to screw up our business, but we need a speaker for our meeting next month, I wonder if he could speak. And then uh, uh, Prentice Hall approached me when I was 27. Simon & Schuster approached me when I was 28. And after 17 books, we came up with new mindset and results. Wow, that's how many books you've written so far? 17, 17th book, yeah. And I thought me writing six was a lot, but it's like I'm, <laughs> I'm getting started. I'm like way behind here, I gotta catch up. So why did you write this book then? You know, my uh, coaching practice is very, very successful. And a lot of the, the ideas I get for books, for example, um, uh, mastering self-confidence, mastering self-discipline. Uh, I wrote uh, Negotiating the Deal. My newest one is going to, I'm just going to finish it uh, probably next week. It's called How to Hire, Recruit, Retain Great People. But all the books I write are in response to what my clients are going through. So it kind of hit me. Why would you have people that you could provide um, some great skill sets, for example, how to get referrals, um, how to do an elevator speech, and they would listen to it and maybe they wouldn't apply it or, or they would apply it and it wouldn't work. So as a psychologist, it, it's always kind of crazy for me to look at the variables and every book I write is a response to helping these clients d- become more effective. And for a lot of people, they, they just, they self-sabotage. So for example, we have uh, one concept in my uh, coaching practice called um, um, 
called uh, 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 barriers to uh, thinking. So, for example, we take people from maybe a hundred thousand bucks a year to two or three hundred thousand dollars a year, and they artificially stop themselves. And you get down deep into it, and they stop doing the things that are really successful. So, for example, we know that if you make a hundred thousand bucks a year and you're a salesperson. Uh, every hour that you're talking to a prospect client makes you $200. Just basically uh, take uh, uh, 1%, uh, multiply that $200 um, uh, per, per phone call. So if you're not doing that, you're doing paperwork, which is maybe 20 bucks an hour. You're uh, throwing away 200 to make 20, and that's a mindset issue. So those, those are self-sabotaging things that people experience with the wrong kind of mindset. And, and, and that's why you gave it that title. Yeah, new mindset, new results. Yeah, yeah, and I love and I love the title. And uh, we had somebody in the audience who said that you wrote something, I guess, in the '90s, and it's still magic today. So that says something. No, that's not me. I'm not that old, so it's somebody else. Oh, uh, okay, all right. Um, <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Tom's got sales magic. Hi, Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, what's the definition of mindset? And you're when you write this mindset is how you filter what you see, what you experience, what you hear, what you feel. Mindset is how you respond to things that happen around you. For example, if um, if I have a, a setback, a mindset would be, do I experience a setback as a growth opportunity or do I experience a setback as taking something away from me? Um, I talk a lot about uh, airline flights because I fly a heck of a lot of speeches there every week. So if I have a, a delay of two or three hours, do I experience that as saying, you know, blank, blank American Airlines, or do I experience that as saying, this is an opportunity to uh, make more progress on the next book. This is an opportunity to be able to uh, do more research. Uh, this opportunity to get more free time so I could do something else. So that that's how we experience life. Um, if I have uh, an argument, my wife, for example, and who, who doesn't have some issues with their spouses, um, do I look at her as being uh, somebody who I should never married, or do I look at her as having this anxiety that we need to help through that process so that she can grow from that? So that all that stuff is mindset. So you can think of mindset as um, a viewpoint, but it's more than that. It's how we filter information that comes in, how we filter experiences. Uh, we have a question from the audience. What's one blind spot you encountered that had high impact and was a wake-up call for you? Oh, this is a really good one. Probably the biggest setback I've had in my career was, and I wrote about this in the book, was I was uh, do, doing a series of about uh, 20, 30 speeches for a, um, an annuity company, and they were sponsoring me. And one of my clients wanted to go in Manchester, um, up in the north in uh, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, New Hampshire, I guess. Um, and he wanted to be a guest. Well, uh, unfortunately, and I was a speaker, he tried to recruit one of the people uh, to his company that they'd be sitting next to. Well, it got back to me when I gave a speech in Boston that that happened. And the wholesaler that was sponsoring me accused me of trying to steal her business. And I felt really guilty. And I said, listen, how can I make this up to you? Uh, it wasn't my fault, but I feel bad that you went through that. And she said, well, if you could do the speech for free today and just uh, give it back to us. And I said, well, I'm doing you know, 30 speeches for you. It's not a big deal. Well, about a month later, she was on a national broadcast with the whole company. And she told the story about how I tried to sabotage her business. And the company pulled everything back from me. So I, uh, I, I lost you know, a heck of a lot of money. So 
this is a situation where uh, it wasn't my fault. The client did try to, uh, the guest did try to steal business. Um, I tried to patch it up with the company and I really felt like they sabotaged me behind my back. So the mindset would be, um, I hate this company. I'm going to disparage them whenever I can. Or it could be, I should never have given that much business to one company. I should uh, split that across other other groups. I'll never let that happen again. And I'm going to work really hard to get that business back and learn from that mistake. That's a really good example of mindset. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book. And I thought that woman was a jerk uh, to have done that to you. And who wouldn't want to take all those engagements? And you thought you had a good opportunity there. Uh, but that's like many entrepreneurs or many businesses who 80% of their income uh, comes from 20% of their clients. And without that diversification, all it takes is a couple of clients to put you out of business. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. You write, it's more natural to think negatively than positively. Why is that? And how do you keep negative thoughts out of your head? For example, let's say you made a proposal to get a consulting gig and you keep thinking you aren't going to get it, even though you're perfectly qualified. Are, are, are those feelings self-fulfilling prophecies? Um, we, we suffer from a lot of things that develop our mindset. One is environmental um, issues. Uh, one is uh, past experiences. Uh, but when we start thinking negatively about things, I mean, that's that's really how a lot of us are trained. Um, you know, the, the if you look at uh, CNBC, it'll... Uh, probably show you 15 of the most horrible things that will happen so they could get you to come to the next uh, show, next uh, show up to the commercial break. So the problem we think negatively is that no matter how you think, whether you think positively or negatively, it creates neural pathways with those thoughts. So think of um, the brain as being a string of uh, interconnections. Uh, acetylcholine is the liquid that uh, actually goes across from the uh, dendrite to the neuron, and it creates all these massive pathways. If you think negatively, it reinforces the pathways, so you think more negatively afterwards. If you try to think positively, it reinforces those pathways at the same time. So the more we think negatively, the easier it becomes to think negatively. So it, in that regard, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What are the three basic building blocks of mindset? And you write about those in the book. Yeah, um, the building blocks are basically um, uh, what you believe in affects behavior. The behavior affects mindset and mindset controls everything. So mindset is like this uh, CPU in a computer. We have the, the behaviors, which is uh, the hard drive. Uh, we have the, maybe the monitors, the USB, the, the network. But everything that happens with the computer is the CPU, and that's mindset. Mindset controls everything that, that you experience. On the other hand, mindset is controlled initially by what we believe in, the, the behaviors that happen. But once we develop a mindset about something, it controls everything else. And um, you were a tennis pro. Uh, for How many years did you play on the circuit? Two years. I describe myself as being 95 in the world until they fixed the ATP computer ranking system where I slipped to 10,033. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke, by the way. <laughs> so from being a tennis pro, what, what did you take away from that that impacted how you, you know, coach people now? Tennis is a really great example of um, how, to, how to win in pretty much everything you do, because tennis is not just about a backhand. 
I had one of the best backhands at pro tennis. It's not about forehand. My forehand was okay. It's not really about movement. I had one of the best flat serves and kick serves of all the people I played. But tennis was knowing how to take all those things together and, and hit the strokes at the right time. So, for example, you'll see people on, on the pro tennis tour, for example, Rafa, who are so competitive, no matter how far they get down, they are able to come back uh, and win the tennis match. Look at the um, Australian Open. Uh, the Australian Open was played in January. He was down two sets to zero uh, against um, Caterpillar, who was it uh, right now, blocking this thing out. But he was able to go, won the next three sets, even though he was, oh, he, uh, Medvedev, uh, even though uh, he was down, he was able to bring himself back up. So my, his mindset was that if I work hard enough, I'll be able to give myself a chance. But I really think he never thought he would ever, ever lose. Um, and tennis was one of those sports where if you, if you have an inkling that I could lose this match, um, you're going to get decimated. I remember uh, playing in a, a major tennis tournament. And uh, one of the players walked in the locker room and said, you know, you're playing next round. And I said, the who? And he said, um, Jimmy Connors. Wow. Boy, I hope you get a game. So guess what happens when you start thinking, I hope I get a game. That yeah, means you lose 6-0, But if you walk into that match thinking he hasn't got a chance, I'm going to decimate this guy. Uh, I'm going to beat him 6-0, Maybe you win, maybe you lose, uh, but you're going to get a much better score, much better outcome than if you went in thinking I'm not going to win. I want to protect myself. I want to try to get a couple of games and not embarrass myself. And that's I, I my wonder, step. I wonder what the thinking is. I remember Yvonne Lendo was down two sets to nothing and four to two in the third set against Jim, uh, against McEnroe and came back. You probably remember that. And I wonder what's going through McEnroe's head that he wasn't able to win that match. And that changed Yvonne Lendl's career permanently. Yeah. Well, think of, think of what you just said. So there's two mindsets going on there. The little mindset is I, I'm going to win. I'm going to come back. The macro mindset is I'm ahead. I can't believe this guy is beating me. Um, if I lose, this is what's going to happen. So we always said in tennis that the hardest game to win is the last game when you're ahead. Uh, the most difficult thing to do is preserve a lead because you start self-sabotaging. You start getting nervous. So one is a, a fixed mindset that McEnroe had. I can't, I, I've got to preserve what I've got. And the other one is a growth mindset, which is what Lindell had, which basically says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going I'm to rise back up. I'm going to overcome all these obstacles. And that's really kind of the purpose of the book, those two mindsets. And, and what do you think the mindset was? And I, I hate to ask another sports question, and we'll, but you're able to weave those in even throughout your book. When the Falcons were up 28 to three on the Patriots and the young guys were like, hey, we're killing Tom Brady. It's over for him. And the older guys yeah. were like, it's Tom Brady. Uh, 28 to three isn't much of a lead if you're going against Tom Brady. Well, you know, Brady's mindset is take it one uh, one play at a time. Right. And these guys, you know, before you knew it, Tom Brady came back and they won. What, what do you think the mindsets were going on there? I think I think in that case, you look at a, a player like Tom Brady. I think th uh, that uh, it, this is I'm not the first person that said this, but Tom Brady had a belief, a belief that says all I have to do is uh, throw throw the passes. I will, if my team plays at the level they can play at, we can win. Uh, it's the belief. In tennis, we, we feel the same way. If I believe I'm going to do well against this guy, 
uh, I've got a good chance of winning. If I, if I believe that I'm just trying to preserve something, I'm not. So I think the old guys had more belief than the young guys did. I think they had more experience that they could, they could pull back up, which is, you know, uh, you and I've talked before about confidence. Uh, what develops self-confidence? Well, it's the belief and the, be able, the ability to access what happened 10 years ago when I was able to overcome um, uh, uh, a 6-3, 5-5-2 deficit that was able to beat the guy in the third set. It's the belief and the memory, the access that I had where I was able to get past this lady who treated me badly uh, and they pulled back 20 speeches and I was able to bring my business back up from the, from the ash sheep to try to uh, build it up to better than what was before. Belief is what uh, uh, benefits these people the most. Well, what do you tell people that have always been successful and then they go on a losing streak, how to get themselves out of going, spiraling out of control? It's the same thing. It's, it's getting them to access past successes. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit, I especially do about my book, uh, Willpower, the Secret Self, uh, oh, sorry, the uh, uh, Mastering Self-Confidence, that when you have a child that might be 10 years old and the child has a difficult time uh, with sports or difficult time with school or difficult time with uh, anything that they're trying to achieve, you tr you've got to bring that kid back to a memory of what they succeeded at in the past. So if we have a kid that, uh, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, my daughter, and she said, everybody in the team is better than I am. Uh, I think I, I should just quit because they're all better. This is a 12-year-old kid on a, softball, a girl's softball team. And, uh, you know, I brought uh, Catherine back. Then I said, Catherine, remember when you got a base hit the second time you were bat with the team? Do you remember when your team won that that game that you were down to six to three? Remember the time when you, uh, you did that double play and you were able to uh, pick that, that batter off? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I do remember that. So when people start getting discouraged, they get down, they forget the, the past successes and they start focusing on the moment instead of what happened in the past. And that's when when uh, people have a downturn, when they have um, a period of uh, you know bad luck or something, it's that they, they forget the successes. They focus only on the downturn. It's funny. I have uh, these three articles I was featured in and they're. Uh, like in my hallway, and they're only there just to remind me that I had past success. So when I start my day, I start my day with a positive mindset. Um, what are the concepts of successive approximation and behavior shaping, and, and why are these things important? This is one of the most important things that I, that I talk about in the book, and I've, I've mentioned this other places. So successive approximation is how we can actually take a behavior and we could develop that behavior in other people to uh, uh, develop something within them. So, for example, uh, let's take a kick, kick example. Um, let's take a kid that um, we really want that child to be able to clean up his room. Uh, and the kid, you just can't tell the kid, clean up your room. And if you don't do it next time, I'm going to get really upset at you. So we have to look at Shamu. So Shamu and SeaWorld, uh, I'm not even sure they have Shamu there anymore. I grew up in San Diego and you know, we used to go to Shamu shows about once, every, once a month during the summertime at least. But they don't take this killer whale and put fish on top of the, uh, sorry, a, a burning poop with a fish at, you know, 100 feet above and wait, say, hey, Shamu, get up there and uh, go through the hoop and I'm going to uh, beat you up until you do that. So what they do is to successfully approximate the behavior. They put a fish on top of the water, Shamu grabs the fish. They put a fish two feet out of the water, 
Shimu grabs the fish. The third day, they put a fish four feet, next day, five feet, until they get to 100 feet. And all the while, they're putting these hoops in there. And maybe the, uh, the third or fourth month, they put fire around the hoop to, so Shamu gets used to the, that success of approximation. We're approximating the target behavior. We want that uh, animal, if you will, to be able to get. Now, our children are not animals, our, our spouse are not animals. But if you want to really get people to, uh, to uh, achieve the behavior you want, you're going to reward them for being closer to the behavior. So, for example, in business, um, I have this discussion all the time. Somebody comes in 30 minutes late. Uh, well, you let them know what the behavior is that you want to target. Listen, uh, Mark, I really need you to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning, Don't not 8.30. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, I, I forgot about that. So... The next day, you don't be, I don't beat Mark up because he comes in at, uh, you know, 810. The next day, I, I reward Mark through praise by being there earlier. So you get there at 825. Hey, Mark, you're doing a super job. I need you at 830, but thank you so much for uh, coming in earlier. And the next time I uh, praise you, and by the way, praise is reward. I praise you for coming in at 820. But the next time is 815 until I get you to actually come in at eight o'clock because I praise you. I behavior shaped you into the behavior that I want you to achieve. We could do the same thing with kids. We could do the same thing. My wife tells me that uh, she saved our marriage. And, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe this because I never I never thought that, you know, I, I did a thing differently. But I would play tennis on Sundays and I have this group of guys and, you know, 12 guys. Uh, we we're all middle aged uh, uh, guys. And. We'd have a couple of beers afterwards that she would be, be be there with the kids and, and play on Sundays. Uh, well, the first time I came home earlier, instead of five o'clock, four thirty, she praised me for being earlier. The next one is four o'clock, the next three o'clock until finally I just changed it to Saturdays. And I said, I'm going to spend time with my family on Sundays, which is what she wanted in the first place. And it was never done because she yelled at me, nagged at me. It's all, always done because she behavior shaped me into uh, spending more time with the, the family on Sundays. And she said it saved our marriage. Smart, very, very smart. Smart lady, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah, that's why you're so uh, successful. She's the uh, behind the throne. <laughs> Are people born with self-confidence or can it be developed? Because, you know, we run across a lot of people and you think, man, that person really has a lot of self-confidence. And those who don't have it wonder, am I just not born with that? I, I don't think people are born with uh, anything like that. I think that you. Uh, we're going to talk about IQ in a couple of seconds because that's one of the questions you want to relate to. So yeah. the only thing that we're actually born with are probably um, uh, probably a level of ability to learn, which is the definition of IQ. Um, I once heard that we're born with three things. Number one, the, um, uh, we're, uh, we're born with the fear of uh, loud noises, the, uh, the, the fear of darkness, and the fear of the IRS. And that's kind of all we're born with. I actually gave a speech. You'll appreciate this part. <laughs> I gave a speech too. And the, I, I think that's one of the four or five fears people have is speaking front groups. So I was in Las Vegas speaking to about a thousand people. And the guy after me was actually speaking on how to speak in front of groups. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, number one fear, fear among America is speaking in front of a group. Number two fear is dying. <laughs> Number three fear is dying while speaking in front of a group. I thought it was hilarious. It was so funny. So we're not born with anything close to being self-confident. That's all developed. And the way it's developed is by things like successive approximation, bringing uh, your kids back to what they were succeed in the past, making sure they, they feel more hopeful about things in the future. Instead of ruminating, worry about things, we bring them back. So, yeah, I don't think we're born with self-confidence. 
I, I, I coached before and I found that if I took the worst kid and we were playing basketball and he accidentally stole the ball and I stopped the game to congratulate him, all of a sudden he started playing at a higher level. <laughs> uh, He's he got that down, memory. What's that? He's got that memory. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think you do. The praise, sincere, authentic praise gets people to another level. So talk, yeah. talk about IQ, because I know like my IQ was pro- is average and nobody would have expected me to write six books and so forth or have a show like this interviewing people like you. So talk about what, what's all cracked up. Is the IQ really that important? Well, IQ was actually created by Alfred Binet back in uh, France in the 19th century. And they were trying to take the students who were uh, uh, probably that had the best chance of becoming uh, great or spectacular or high achievers to put him in a special school. Uh, so uh, he had this series of batteries of tests that would actually identify these students who were more gifted. They called it gifted. That IQ model was created in 1871. It lasted uh, probably until maybe three or four years ago, and we just started fighting against IQ. So that was more than 100 years that we thought that IQ was static. It would never change. It was always going to be the same. Um, good example I, I wrote in this book that I, I there was a class in, uh, I think it was uh, probably uh, 10th grade or uh, maybe ninth grade or something in high school. And this uh, t- teacher was horrible. It was a civics class or history. And I would just want to get out, went to the counselor and I said, can you put me in a different class? I like the teacher. And she said, uh, well, uh, the only one left is the gifted uh, gate program and you have to test into it. But we looked at your IQ, which is, you know, between uh, 100 is average IQ. 140 is typically um, uh, way above average, and Einstein was maybe 180 or something like that. Uh, but the IQ doesn't change, but, um, well, I really want to get out of the class. Well, I gave you the test, but, you know, your IQ is not going to change. Well, she gave me three hours. She left me alone, and I uh, gave it to her back in two hours, and she came back um, after about a half an hour scoring the test, and she looked shocked. She said, I've, I've never in all my years of being in the school system seen an IQ go from, I forgot what it, where it was, uh, because we know IQ doesn't change. And which is really good for her because they, they get more money from the state when they could have did. I remember you said that in the book. Students. Yeah. Uh, so she was just thrilled. And that was my first experience with IQ, even though I, I wasn't in academia yet. So now we know that IQ can actually go up depending on how much growth you have. So one of the uh, really important things in the book, New Mindset, New Results, is there's three kinds of mindsets. Number one is a fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset says, all I am right now is I'll ever be, I need to protect myself. My wife says, uh, you know, you really messed up in this one. I've got to defend myself and attack her because I can't let, I can't grow from it. I've got to protect my uh, my fixed mindset, I've got to uh, protect my fixed characteristics, my first fixed IQ, my fixed features. The second one is called the growth mindset. And the growth mindset says basically everything that happens to me, I'm going to be able to grow from. I'm going to take what I have currently and I'm going to develop, move, achieve, but I'm going to take every experience I'm going to learn from that. So those are the two mindsets. The fixed mindset is um, all I am right now, as will ever be. The growth mind was set was created by Carol uh, Zweck at uh, Stanford University, who discovered that certain people were able to grow through problems, through altercations. And the book is really focused a little bit more on the results focused mindset. So the results focused mindset says, uh, here's where I am right now. 
here's where I want to be. I need to change this part of who I am to get here. And it could be maybe I need to get an MBA. I need to get a PhD. Maybe I need to take a couple of courses. I need to think differently. But the mindset part was I need to I need to change who I am to get to this level. So I tell my coaching clients when I first do a 20 question evaluation, the only way that we're going to be able to get you from one hundred thousand bucks a year to two hundred thousand dollars a year is either by doubling your hours or by doubling your skills. And what I really mean by that is skills plus how you think about things, uh, because otherwise you're going to work twice the hours, but you're not going to uh, unless we do that without the mindset, and the skill set, we're not going to be able to get you to the next level. And most people will just get stuck at whatever they're in. So uh, another way to think of mindset, too, is um, how tr- uh, stocks trade. I was a stockbroker for one year and uh, cold calling wasn't my deal. So. I, I still sell, by the way, to use referrals instead of cold calling now, but there's a support level and a resistance level. So a stock will trade in between these two levels. So it'll go up here, up here, jump up uh, to the resistance level, jump down to the support level. But you'll see this 52-day moving average of what would basically, if the stock goes below the support level, I buy. If the stock goes above the resistance level, I sell. So we're always trying to trade within that channel. We're exactly like that in our lives. So if you want to take income, if, I, if I'm making between, I don't know, 50, 100,000 bucks a year, I'll artificially self-sabotage if I start getting to 120 or 130. I'll also work 24 hours a day if I get down to 30, 40, 50,000 bucks, because I've got to keep myself in that predestined channel of uh, where, where my life is headed. That's why it's so difficult for people to get a results-focused mindset or a growth mindset because we're fixed in these channels of how we're developing, how we're doing, how successful we are. And that's one of the reasons mindset is so important. Uh, Question from the audience. What's the one thing that has shifted your approach, delivery, and execution to attract new clients from this COVID business? Um, I wrote a book called uh, uh, The Mastering the Virtual Sale. Um, one of the reasons why you see the, the frame of this uh, camera right here, that's I, I had to prop it up, so I wanted to make sure this framed effectively. Um, I, 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 the thing that really shaped me the most is realizing how much more we can do uh, virtually than we could ever do face-to-face. Uh, a, mo- a lot of my clients uh, realize that just by embracing new, uh, new technologies, growing through this thing, they can actually get more business in this and this platform than we can if we were just doing windshield time and seeing maybe three appointments a day, et cetera, et cetera. That changed a lot for me. Uh, You write about why entrepreneurs fail, and you write that in many cases, it isn't about lack of money, but attitude. Can you uh, talk about that? Yeah. So I've got this uh, one client who has um, a landscaping business, and he said, I really haven't been able to grow much. I've been in business for 15 years, and most landscapers in in the world – you know, they uh, they get to maybe one year, two years, they're running the money and they have to work for somebody else. And 85 percent of businesses fail because not because they don't have enough cash is because they don't know how to market themselves. Well, you go to I went to this landscaper and I said, so tell me what you do in terms of uh, new clients. Do you get referrals? Uh, well, not really. Uh, they, they always say I, I, it's word of mouth, word of mouth. Well, uh, how, how do you get referrals? Well, you know, people talk about me. Well, we know that. Um, there's two kinds of referrals. One is called proactive referral. 
The other one's called advocacy. A proactive referral is when you get a name, you call the person, you book an appointment. Advocacy referral, that has a 38% chance of booking an appointment. An advocacy referral is when people call you out of the blue. That has an 83% chance of booking business. The only possible way we're able to get advocacy referrals is by frequency of contact, keeping in contact with clients, prospects, et cetera, et cetera. So I said to this landscaper, I said, I want you to start calling people every three months, no matter if you've done business with them, if you've not, uh, and just give an update. Here's how your lawn is doing. Uh, call the prospects to say, uh, we had a couple of things you're working on. Tell me your progress on that. And I checked back with this guy after six months. I said, how, how many people did you call? Oh, you know, I was really too busy. I was doing paperwork. We had some uh, people to quit. I had to, uh, you know, I had to do some accounting. I really didn't get into that. That's why small businesses fail, because they can't do the right things. They're really busy. We call those avoidance behaviors. They're avoiding doing the things they need to be doing, but they fail because they're not doing the right things. Um, how's that different uh, from the growth mindset? The growth mindset would say, okay, so Kerry Johnson's written 17 books. I believe him. I trust him. Uh, I've agreed that I need to do that. And I'm going to do whatever I have to do to change to be able to make those three-month phone calls and get those advocacy referrals. The fixed mindset, I've got this thing happening right now. I haven't got staff. Um, I'm just going to do it because it's easier for me. Um, that's a fixed mindset. The gross mindset says, I don't care what happens. I'm going to uh, hire somebody else, a part-timer. I'm going to work you know, late into the night to do that, but I'm, I'm going to make those three-month phone calls. That's the, the I'm growing into something I need to be. That's the growth mindset. Yeah, I, I send every week three articles to past clients uh, to a couple different groups of clients. And I find usually once a month, someone contacts me and said, hey, I'd like to get together for lunch and uh, talk about something you might be able to help me with. Uh, here's another question from the audience. What are the right things that small businesses that they have to focus on? Uh, how is the rule of 80-20, should it apply to uh, SMEs? Well, Pareto principle basically says 80% of my business comes from 20% of the clients. 20% of my business comes from 80% of the clients. So what that really means is let, let's really focus on the things that make you the most amount of money. So as I said before earlier in this uh, in the show, uh, that the reason the uh, businesses fail is because they're not doing the right things. Well, the truth of the matter is that I need to be doing the things that are client-focused, uh, customer-focused mostly. So if I can if I can maximize my customer contact time, talking to people, relationships, touching people, and minimize the administration stuff I do, I'm going to be able to uh, offload that to somebody else. I'm going to be able to grow my business a lot more, a lot more effectively, a lot faster. Um, and, and avoidance behaviors are all the things that we do to avoid doing the things that are uncomfortable. Talking to people is uncomfortable. Talking to prospects is uncomfortable. They get you know, give me rejection. Maybe I'll have a fear of success. Maybe I have a fear of failure. I have a fear of looking foolish. So I'm going to avoid doing those things and doing the things that are comfortable, the avoidance behaviors that will slowly sabotage my business. And uh, what kind of damage can people who can consistently provide negative feedback and how do you get over that? And you talk about that in the book. That's really difficult because uh, there, there are people that I play tennis with and I play golf with. 
and uh, they'll tell me about all the horrible things that happened. You know, I was just in Costa Rica and my flight was three hours delayed. I can't believe what happened. You know, I had to, I had this situation where my daughter just said this to me about a week ago. I was stuck at Birmingham and American Airlines is my wife. Uh, it's a flight tent with American Airlines. There was the flight was so late that they were going to um, I had to spend the night in Birmingham and I had to buy a ticket on Delta and it cost me double the price. You know that we hear this happening all the time. This and this and this. We've really got to be able to take ourselves out of um, things that are influential and focus on the things that we need to do. Um, and way to do that is called pattern interrupt. So I talked about neural pathways a couple of minutes ago. So we have all these neurons, billions of neurons of the brain. And the more we think, the more we reinforce those neural pathways. And the more we reinforce it, the easier it is for us to be able to think of those neural pathways. It's almost like a pipe. If I don't think much about something, the pipe will become that big. If I think a lot about it, the pipe becomes that big. It, it, more water goes through, the more blood grows through, et cetera, et cetera. So a pattern interrupt would be very simple. I'll take, if you could imagine my watch, uh, this is a rubber band. Every time you hear something that's self-sabotaging, every time you hear something that's not edifying, uplifting, we snap it. And that snap was, is going to cause not a lot of pain, but discomfort. That'll be a reminder for us to think about the time that we did get to uh, uh, Charleston on time. The time that we did, where we we're, were able to. Uh, to get more time to write that new book. We were able to work on that new project because we ha had more free time instead of focus on the, on the negative things. Um, you write about how John McEnroe, which we talked a little bit earlier about what happened with Lendl, loved the money and fame, but not the game. How did he yeah. play at such a high level without loving it? Because that's what always impressed me about like Pete Rose and how he was able to play so many years because he just was so passionate about the game. So talk about that. Yeah, Macro in his book, You Can't Be Serious, actually talked about that. He said he uh, start, he played tennis. He enjoyed tennis, but didn't love it. So his father, it was, his father was dominating. Uh, Patrick Macro talked about his father also from time to time. But Macro loved the fame. He loved the money, which is why Macro was uh, number one in the world for 170 weeks. Now, compare that to Roger Federer. Roger Federer was number one in the world for 302 weeks. Roger Federer made $80 million. You're the highest paid athlete in the world for a period of time. He's been injured lately. He may not come back. Uh, but McEnroe uh, um, uh, was, was a guy that really liked the traffic success. He didn't really like tennis that much. If you talk to Federer, especially Rafa, these two guys love tennis so much. I get the feeling they do it for free, but don't let that get around. Right. So it's a difference between, between loving something so much that you enjoy it versus uh, want to be focused on it because of, of the benefits. And again, to relate to the book, Macro was a fixed mindset. Fetter, Rafa, it was a growth mindset. Because look at uh, look at another situation. Look at how players talk about the other player after they lose. Almost all of us are trained on TV to say, oh, you know, Rafa played wonderfully. He deserved to win. But what they say afterwards during the press conferences is really interesting. So Macro almost always would say, you know, that Lendl, if it wasn't for that sawdust, you know, I'd be able to, uh, uh, they always had to clean this out. It was too distracting. Uh, yeah. You know, he, uh, you know, I don't like, I don't like Lendl because, um, you know, he did something, something, something. Federer would always congratulate the person before and after. Look at LaRafa. He won um, his, I think it was the uh, 21st Grand Slam. He passed Federer up by one Grand Slam in, uh, in Australia. And Federer called Rafa 
And he said, congratulations, that's a great achievement. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you did that. Would Macro have done that? I doubt no. it. <laughs> Would Macro have done it? He did. Yeah, well, Macro is a different kind of person for sure. Question from the audience. How can we change the scarcity mindset? Oh, that's really that's really uh, interesting. So there's two kinds of, um, I'm not sure it's a mindset, but it's a way of thinking about something, scarcity and abundance. Scarcity is related to a fixed mindset. What I have right now, I have, uh, you know, a thousand bucks in my, in my uh, bank account. I, I need to preserve that. I know that that one seminar is going to help me use referrals better. I know that one seminar is going to help me, uh, uh, this one book, this one thing over here is going to help me grow into something, but I've got to keep it. Because what if something terrible happened? At least I'll have a cushion. The growth mindset basically says, it, if I want to think in terms of abundance, I want to take that thousand bucks as a tool to get something better. Listen to this. Um, I wrote a book called Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes with the Money. And we discovered that one of the biggest reasons why people um, don't have retirement plans that are sufficient for retirement uh, is because they, they look at the money they make right now and I need to save that and spend it instead of investing it for something that I, I can't touch until I'm maybe 65, 70 years old. So I'm going to keep it right now. Uh, maybe I've got a, a savings account, but I'm not going to invest it in something else because of this scarcity mindset. It's the deferred gratification versus immediate gratification. <laughs> Can you please talk about the concept of confirmation bias, how that can negatively affect your decisions and how to prevent a person from falling into that trap, which I think happens all the day and one of the things that's been dividing the country? Scarcity, scarcity bias is really a good example of mindset because scarcity bias basically by definition says, um, I'm going to think, I'm going to listen to only the things I already believe. Um, if I think that uh, this this happens a lot in a lot, you mean of confirmation bias? You mean confirmation? confirmation. I sorry, not not scarcity. Confirmation bias, of course. So confirmation bias says I'm only going to listen to things I already believe. So this happens a lot in the investment business. The people who invest in real estate don't want to hear about uh, stocks, bonds, etc. People in the stocks, bonds area don't want to really hear about real estate. So you have this confirmation that says I'm only going to pay attention. This is politics too. There was a uh, um, a really interesting thing when uh, Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, and uh, I think it was one of the late, late uh, night talk show hosts that went into Harlem and they uh, talked to some of the Barack Obama um, uh, voters. And they said, so what do you think about Barack Obama? Oh, he's a wonderful guy. He's, one, he's just great. He'll, uh, he's going to be a make a great president. What do you think about Sarah Palin as being his running mate? Do you like her? Oh, yeah, she's great. She's, they have to have a woman on the ticket. What about uh, him doing with welfare? How do you support that? Yeah, people have got to work. How about his anti-abortion stance? You know, you know, I just don't believe in abortion. So all the things that Barack Obama was not for, they said he was. And because of the confirmation of Barack Obama, they were biased and they would listen to anything else except how great Barack Obama was. But it's just, just politics. Um, if you look at uh, uh, people that have an opinion about anything, they won't listen to anything else except for what they believe, which makes everything so polarizing right now. Um, I read The Economist. I read The Wall Street Journal because The Economist is pretty liberal. The Wall Street Journal is pretty conservative because I'm always trying to get an angle of something else. I listened to this one. Uh, speaking of uh, prescient, 
Um, I listened to this one interview from the University of Chicago professor. His name is uh, Mearsheimer, mm-hmm. political science. He was giving an, a, a reason why um, uh, the Russia president of Putin was invading Ukraine. Uh, in 2008, the, I don't believe this, by the way, but I want to get that viewpoint. In 2008, um, NATO uh, was it actually invited Ukraine and Georgia into the part, big uh, part of NATO. Putin felt uh, like it was getting too close. He felt threatened, so he invaded Georgia right away. He invaded um, uh, the eastern provinces of Ukraine, and of course, we, we know what happened now. I don't, I don't believe what he said, but at least you know, a, a person with confirmation bias wouldn't even listen to it after maybe the first five or six minutes. Yeah, I I think that I think that as well. And one of the things I liked in your book was I like to quote when people uh, show you who they are, you should believe them. And I remember Donald Trump said that after being elected, he never hid who he was. Why do people not believe what they see in others and often make the bad often make bad hiring decisions? Um, the reason is because we're, we rationalize what we want for people. One of the biggest. Um, um, the best piece of advice I gave her, give my three daughters. I've got three daughters. Uh, one is Stacy. She's 39. She She's my favorite, by the way, because she gave me two grandkids. The middle <laughs> one. <laughs> come on, everybody's got a five favorite kid. Um, the middle one is pretty special. She's going to physician assistant school right now in Denver. She's wonderful. She's 30. My youngest one is 28 years old. This kid is fabulous. Uh, she uh, volunteered with Youth with a Mission in Thailand. China and also Indonesia rescuing girls out of sex slavery. They're all very accomplished. She works for an orphanage right now. They're accomplished. They're wonderful kids. But I always said to them, when people show you who they are, you should believe them. Oh, yeah, but this guy is so sweet. He's so nice. He's such a wonderful guy. You know, he's always uh, he's always takes uh, always takes care of me. He always smiles. He always asks me how I'm doing. Okay, sweetie, what's it? What what does he act like? Well, yeah, but that doesn't matter because I you know, they wanted to believe in this fantasy about who someone was instead of look at the behavior they had. You know, uh, I, I personally think kind of, I, I want to stay away from politics to the extent that I can, but I don't really believe much in what people say. I want to look at the policies that they've done. Uh, so when people show you who they are, when they show you what they've done, you should believe them. That's who that person is, not what they say. That's what every mom and dad has told every kid from the beginning of time. Yeah, no, no question about it. You had a great example of someone leaving your employee for more money, and you wrote that when someone leaves for more money, it's a cover-up uh, for another problem. Can you explain that, and how did leaders catch that before it happens? Um, yeah, I actually wrote that out, too, because I wanted to uh, take some stuff from my book, how to hire, recruit, retain great people. So um, I had a, a, a one uh, a marketing person named Andrea. And I came back from a trip and Andre met me at the airport. And I said, well, this is kind of strange. She's meeting at my gate. This is before uh, uh, 9-11. And she said, by the way, I just want to let you know I'm going to work for Peter. And I, Peter was not a good friend, but he was a colleague. And uh, he's going to pay me 25% more money. And I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I was uh, unhappy about it. But, you know, that's what I could do. Turns out that there's, and here's a test for you. Turns out there are five reasons why people join and leave a company. And I'll, I'll let you uh, pick the ones you think where people join and people leave. Uh, number one is money. Number two is fun. Number three is recognition. Number four is support. 
And uh, number five is uh, number recognition support. Let's just take four. I can't remember what the fifth one is. I, right I would think recognition would be the most important. A support recognition. Here it is. Money fund training support, training support recognition. Okay, so I'll, I'll give this to you one more time. Money fund training support recognition. What's the number of reason why people leave a company? I think lack of recognition. What's number two, you think? Uh, well, money is at the bottom. So I'm going to put money at the very bottom. Let's cut to the chase. Yeah. When people leave a company, it's always because I didn't get enough recognition. Millennials uh, or Gen Xers don't get enough training. The younger they are, the more they want training. Uh, I didn't enough support. I, my computers are slow. The chair squeaks. You know, the yeah. telephones are antiquated. Uh, and at the bottom is always money. So when she said, I'm leaving because I want 25% more money, it wasn't the money. It was something else that I found out. It was uh, it was the inability to cope with other people within my company. What do you think the number one reason is for people to join a company, Mark? This becomes pretty easy. Uh, uh, is it always because of my, they start off with money? They start exactly. They start with money. And the reason is because they don't know the kind of train they're going to get. They don't know about the recognition. They don't know about the support. They don't know anything else. So the only thing they can focus on, the only thing that's real for them is money. So what that really means is, and, and I write about this in my book, uh, what it means is always start people out when you hire them with the amount of income they're getting right now. But uh, I always tell people that the work for me anyway, I'm going to start you with your income currently. I'm going to increase you after a period of time. But you know, after three months, if the, if the salary is competitive, it's almost never why people leave. It's one of the other reasons. Yeah, I, I always think that, too. Um, and you're always t checking their temperature about things and how they how they feel comfortable. I remember one time becoming CEO of a company that um, one of my board members invested in. And every day I was hoping the train would derail so I wouldn't have to go into that company. And <laughs> even though they were paying me a lot more money, I really hated the culture and everything. It was a very hard culture uh, to go and change. So it's never about, you know, the, the, I the learned that at 33. New mindset and results. But since we're talking about this, this is an interesting stat I'm, I'm writing about currently. 83% of the people working right now do not like their jobs. They don't. They don't like what they're doing, which really equates to, I don't like my boss. I don't like the environment. 69% are currently looking to change, looking for new opportunity. So you look at the great resignation, the 3.9 unemployment average, and that doesn't reflect these people who are looking for an opportunity someplace else, but they're just not on the job boards. They're not on Zip Recruiter. They're not on, uh, uh, they're not looking for uh, uh, any other place, right? Glassdoor, et cetera but they're looking for an opportunity. They're just not available to those uh, platforms. Uh, I really love the story about this guy from CFS to bill collection in terms of outward thinking and the uh, differentiating and improving internal morale. Could you please talk about uh, that and what we can take away from it, especially first explain what outward mindset is, but then talking about the outward thinking as well. Yeah, uh, the, the two kinds of mindsets uh, that work within the, the, the genre of new mindset results is the outward mindset basically says, if I'm going to make a decision about something, I'm going to think about how it affects other people at the same time, whether or not it's efficacious to get what I want to do. The inward mindset says, I'm going to think about what I want 
and the outward thinking how it affects other people is going to be tangential. So a good example of that would be one of my buddies. Uh, he said, listen, I can only play tennis until 5.30. I've got to go. Uh, and, of course, we went up to get a beer, uh, and it was 7 o'clock. And I said, by the way, weren't you supposed to be someplace at 5.30? Yeah, my wife wanted me to take her out. Well, you're late. You're an hour and a half late. Yeah, but she'll be upset uh, maybe for a couple of days, but that'll be it. That's a good example of an inward mindset. The outward mindset basically says, um, I, I, I want to do this, but I want to make sure it's okay with these other people and it won't adver adversely affect them. So this one bill collection company thought, how do people collect bills? Uh, we make a lot of money. We get 25% of the, of the bill. If we can uh, collect it, maybe we factor it. We buy the whole thing. We try to collect as much as we can. We get a discount on that. But we're calling these people and they don't have jobs. Uh, maybe they're behind in other things. Maybe what we could do is help them increase their income. That would help them pay their bill more effectively. So they said, we're going to call these people. And we're going to actually, uh, for the people who are unemployed, they obviously can't pay a bill unemployed. We're going to try to find out what their skill set is. And we're going to try to set with job interviews. And to the extent that they were successful in that, they would actually call these applicants the morning of the interview and remind them of the, of the interview. And they'd review uh, resumes. So they were doing a little bit more than a bill collection. They were trying to make the person more successful in their life, which then would help, make, help them pay their bills. That's a really good example of an outward mindset yeah, and a I thought that mindset was, at the same time. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant way of differentiating himself and making people who probably who work for him aren't crazy about being bill collectors. It's got to be like the worst job in the world. But he made it into a really fun job for them. And the people he dealt with didn't were probably taking their calls because they developed a great reputation. When's the last time any of us, um, I all of us were probably collect, uh, called by a bill collector sometime in their life. Uh, but when's the last time someone called us and said, hey, listen, um, uh, tell me about the bill. Are you having trouble paying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can I help you? Uh, um, uh, can I help you uh, develop a system where you can pay it? Would that be beneficial for you? I've never heard that once in my whole life. Instead, what they did say is pay it right now. We're going to ding your credit. We're going to make your life miserable. Yeah. Totally different mindset. Yeah. You, you tell a great story about legendary basketball coach Bobby Knight and his growth mindset with the players, but a fixed mindset for himself. Please tell us about it. And could Knight have won more than three national championships if he would have fixed that? Bobby Knight was really famous for caring amazingly about his, uh, about his kids that were playing basketball. Uh, Indiana, Bobby Knight would uh, uh, take care of the kids when they were in the hospital. Uh, they care, take care of the parents to the extent that he was uh, allowed that by the NCAA. Uh, Bobby Knight would always do the extra step about guiding people through um, uh, not only coaching, but psychological issues. Maybe they lost a parent. They uh, had some problem with school. Maybe they had uh, some uh, psychological issue. He'd always be there for the kids. No matter what happened, he was always supportive for the kids. Be a growth mindset. You can could, you could think of that as an outward mindset. For himself, though, he was hot-headed. I mean, he uh, he threw a chair across the. Uh, I watched floor. that game. <laughs> well, I didn't see it. I heard about it. I watched um, it. It was unbelievable. But uh, he 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 took a kid uh, by the back of his jersey and put his hands around his neck, like almost like he was going to strangle him. I think he was uh, fined, and also he was suspended for that one episode. But so that's a fixed mindset. When you can't tolerate certain things, you've got to protect what you have. Uh, throw the chair across, grab the kid by the neck. That's a fixed mindset. So what he could have done 
to be able to become a better coach. Speaking of wanting more games, what he could have done is said, you know, what's happening right now, we're going to go back to the, the, the drawing board next week. We're going to coach the, these players through it. Um, and I'm going to be able to think that way during the game instead of going so crazy by self-sabotaging myself. So he had a fixed mindset for himself and a growth mindset for the kids. It's too bad. He could have won, been, of course, he is one of the greatest basketball, college basketball coaches in history. He could have been the greatest. Yeah, uh, probably uh, for sure. Uh, we only have a few minutes here. So let's talk about this. What's the best way of setting goals that you can reach but are attainable so it doesn't squash your ambition or your employees? So a goal is only something that you can attain. If you can't attain it, it's called a dream. So great, I, I want, I, I've got a house in Portugal. I'd love to have a house in Park City, which my kids are going. I'd love to have another house, uh, maybe in California, so I could rent that thing out. Uh, do I want to work for it? No, it's a dream. I don't want to work to get those things. So a goal is only something you could set your activity for, and we like to work things down on a weekly basis to be able to get the thing that you want. Let me give you an example. So we do in our coaching practices, we say, okay, uh, maybe it's a salesperson, maybe it's a business owner. You, uh, we, you want to work uh, 45 weeks a year. You want to make 450,000 bucks a year. And if you break that down 45 weeks, it's um, uh, 450, that's 10,000 bucks a week. See if I do my math effectively. The average sale for me, the average uh, sale is going to be, let's say, $2,000. So that means I have to make five sales a week. So there's four stages in a client relationship. Number one is called the sale. Number two is called, in fact, I'll just I'll give you these levels. Uh, number two is called the, uh, the closing presentation. We present something that we hope people are going to say yes to or no. Number three is the opening fact finder. We listen, uh, we pay attention, we ask questions. And number four is sourcing the business, which is referrals, uh, uh, could be some sort of social media. I, I love referrals, which is why I always talk about this the most. So we say that we need five sales. Our closing average is pretty close to 85%. So I have to do six closing presentations. My closing ratio is really high on the opening fact finder. So that means I need to do seven opening fact finders. And a third of the people I talk to, I can interest them into listening effectively, asking questions to put in the pipeline and I need to make 10 of those things. So my business plan is 10 contacts, seven opening fact finders, six closing presentations, five sales. Now, to the extent that I could keep myself disciplined to do that every single week will mean that I'm gonna make 450,000 bucks a year. And that means I can buy a house over here. I could buy college for my kids over here. I could be able to buy a new Porsche over here, whatever the goal is. But if you if you just set a goal, I want to buy the house of Portugal. And if you didn't go through that process, it's a dream. It's not a goal. I like that differentiator. Here's the last question for you. Uh, and you wrote a lot about this in the book. And I, I always thought this was interesting because I'm a former sports writer. Please talk about the concept of visualization and how successful is that? Because I've tried to visualize things and it hasn't quite turned out the way I would have liked. Uh, well, visualization I talk about the book is not the visualization you think about. So the visualization uh, that we think about is um, whatever you can uh, believe, visualize, and could see, if you will achieve. I think I heard one of my mentors, Zig Ziglar, talk about that once. The visualization we want to do is more towards NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. So NLP basically says that what I need to do is I need to diminish 
the picture of things I don't want or the things I want to avoid and increase the vividness of the things I do want. So, for example, we, uh, uh, Bandler and Grinder, talked about how to uh, do what's called a phobia cure. So they would have somebody, and this, by the way, this is um, one of the things that I did uh, when I was at the VA administration without even knowing it. Uh, back in UC San Diego days in the late 70s, we were able to get uh, uh, soldiers out of PTSD. We'd actually get them to relive the episode in a third person. So it's almost like they see themselves on a screen of a movie, movie reliving the episode of when they were in Vietnam, for example, that we had a lot of Vietnam vets. And they, were, they experienced the firefight and they experienced um, the situation of maybe one of their buddies dying kind of a horrible, morbid thing to think about, but they had to do this thing. And we'd have them go through this whole thing as a third person on a movie screen, maybe for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. At first, they'd have these horrible emotions at, 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 uh, as they went farther through it after a couple of weeks, they disassociate who they were to what happened. And they were able to uh, decrease the symptoms because of that, uh, uh, decreasing that picture, that vividness. So let's let's take an example of something we do want. Um, maybe this is a movie toward kind of a thing. So if I want to uh, buy a house in Portugal, I look at that picture of the house in Portugal. I look at this house on a cliff overlooking the ocean. I see the people. I can see this right now because my, I, you know, I, I haven't been in my house in about six months. I see the the people in the square. How how wonderful the people are during black and white night, which everybody dresses in black and white. They have bands on each street corner. They have bottom music everywhere. Um, they have uh, uh, the, these fishing fishing boats are on the side. I could see that it's just so vivid as I'm talking about this right now. The more I can do that, the more I can focus on that being the end result of the goal I want that I can do these things with. So two things. Number one, the things I want to diminish, I can decrease the emotions. The things I want to increase the vividness, I can increase the emotions, which helps us achieve our goals more effectively. Kerry, I always love speaking to you. I thank you for coming on for the second time with me. And this book is terrific and I hope people are gonna get it. And now I've got to get some of these other books and have you on again in 2023 because <laughs> we're booked Please for the rest it. of this year. So um, I'm gonna have to take a look through your books and or you can suggest some books to me. I will. Everybody have a great weekend. Again, Kerry, good speaking to you. Thanks, take Mark. care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.